Stony Island Audio. I swear it's a bop. It's just a bop. My name is Open Mike Eagle. Welcome to What It Happened Was. This is season two, episode eight of our sit down with LP. You may know him from Run the Jewels. You may know him from Company Flow, The Raucous Days, or his record label, Def Jux. On this particular episode, as we deep dive through his career, we're going to speak about his third solo album, Cancer for Cure. Before we get to that, we want to shout out our sponsors. We have a sponsor for this week's episode, an ExpressVPN. Have you ever browsed on the internet in so-called incognito mode? It's probably not as incognito as you think. And why would it be? Because incognito mode is part of the Chrome browser, which is a Google product. Google makes all this money by letting companies know what you do when you online use Google products. This is how they make their money. There's a $5 billion class action lawsuit against Google in California where Google is accused of secretly collecting user data when people think they're using incognito to be secretive online, but Google's really like, nah, I'm selling that. So how do you actually make yourself as invisible as possible online? You use ExpressVPN. It turns out that even in incognito mode, your online activity still gets tracked and data brokers still get to buy and sell your data. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, your connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and your IP address is masked. They can't sell it if it's masked. Every time you connect to ExpressVPN, you get a random IP address that's shared with many other ExpressVPN users. That makes it harder for third parties to identify you and harvest your data. Best of all, ExpressVPN is very easy to use no matter what device you're on, phone, laptop, or smart TV. All you have to do is tap one button for instant protection. So if you really want to be incognito and protect your privacy, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN. Visit ExpressVPN com slash what and get three extra months for free. That's EXPRESSVPN.com slash what expressvpn.com slash what. And this is what it happened was part of the Stony Island Audio Network. If you're enjoying the content that you're hearing here, please be sure to check all of the shows on our network. We have a bunch of new stuff that's coming soon that I'm very excited to talk about. I also want to let y'all know this because it comes to my attention that people don't realize that um, the seasons of what had happened was the first season being with Prince Paul and this season being with LP. The theme song to each season is produced by said guest. The first one being Prince Paul and this one being LP. It's not me um, putting on a disguise and 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 doing a Prince Paul type beat or an LP type beat. We're actually getting it from the source themselves, which gives um, it gives each season the feel that goes along with the uh, with the kind of stuff we'll end up talking about. And and to me, um, it's just a cherry on top of these deep dives. We really get to go deep into these careers. And on this episode, we're deep diving into cancer. For Cure, LP's third solo album. And it was coming in a time that was really difficult in his life. There was a lot he was dealing with. Uh, Def Jux had folded at this point. And, um, you know, he really didn't know what was next for him as he was trying to figure out the next step in his musical journey. He happened to end up making this album and 
Killer Mike's rap music, which we covered in the last episode. He created those at the same time, but before those happened, he was really in a lost place. He really had come from Def Jux, where he had had so much context around him and been able to um, perpetuate and push and create business around this scene that he was from, and after that had dissolved. He didn't know what was next. And a lot of that, that, that difficulty, a lot of those challenges are reflected in his music. And that's stuff that we end up unpacking in this interview. So with that said, let's get into it. Season two, episode eight of what had happened was. We'll get back into it in one second, but I need to take a quick moment and shout out our sponsor, DistroKid. Man, so many of my homies use DistroKid. It's a music distribution service that makes distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to put their music on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. A million plus artists, and I swear I know at least 100 of them. And now DistroKid has an app. You can use the app to upload new releases, see your DistroKid bank, and get notified when you've earned royalties. You can even check your streaming stats live. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS. Go to the App Store and download it. DistroKid also has a new feature called Instant Share that allows you to easily share large files securely with collaborators, producers, booking agents, managers, playlist curators, and more. Basically, anybody that needs access to your music is an easy way to upload it and send them a link. Go to distrokid.com slash instant share, drag and drop your files to upload, and then you can copy and send your link right there. It's free to send one gigabyte of files. That's like 100 MP3s. Don't quote me on that. Go to distrokid.com slash open mic. That's distrokid.com slash open mic. O-P-E-N-M-I-K-E for 30% off your membership. LPs cancel for two. You guys get some snaps for LP. Deluxe labor, the underground undertaker, the whole capers, independent as fuck flavor. Audio exhibit, visit the history. To him winning without fucking with the industry. And him losing without fucking with the industry. No illusion, we tracing every movement in the symphony. This is official from lifting of pencils. Cold flow the death jugs up to the fist and the pistol. I'm sending questions like infinite missiles. Digging for details when stories from the past come up. And if he don't remember, then he has to shrug. It's what the podcast does, what it happened was. What up, what up, what up? Good afternoon, morning, night, um, people of the, the internet, human beings everywhere. Uh, welcome to another episode of What Had Happened Was with our weekly uh, captive, Mr. LP, uh, who has is, who is graced us with his presence again so we can talk about his his amazing body of work. Mr. LP, how are we doing today? I'm good, man. Let's, let's talk about my amazing body. Oh, you know, I almost oh, oh, stopped sorry. short on the sentence. I yeah. almost stopped short saying it because I was oh, like, "Oh, you said, oh, you said if, work." I'm sorry. Yeah, I was like, "What if I just flirt with him right now?" Like, <laughs> <laughs> I 
<laughs> How would that come off? So what if this whole thing was just not even real and it was just yep. your it was just a long sort of ruse to just get to know me? This is this is um, actually this is how I date. You know what I'm saying? Right, right, right. right. Yeah. That's how it happens. It just, COVID, you know. man. It's changing the game. <laughs> it's really changing the rules. I'm chilling, man. I'm, thanks for having me back. Of co- well, of course. Um, you haven't fired me yet, so you know we're still here. We're here to talk about your third solo album, 2012's Cancer for Cure. Yeah. I don't usually ask you about album titles, and the reason I don't is because you know, like me being an artist myself, I know how like complex and layered of a process that can be, and it's usually like not straight answers. But it does immediately make you think of Kamutao, um, mm-hmm. him having passed from cancer and you having dedicated this album to him. Mm-hmm. Um, is that the reference of, of cancer in the title or is there more to it? The way that I've explained it to people in the past has been that I think that that word had been floating around in my head probably mm-hmm. for that reason. I wasn't thinking that the title was about Mo. Like, I wasn't like what I was thinking, like, oh, I'm making a direct reference to my friend who died of cancer. Um, I had a whole bunch of other sort of meanings to it in my head. But I had to at least acknowledge that that was probably, I think, the first time in my life that that word was so just there a lot, Mm -hmm. you know? I think that the record was a bit of a reckoning for myself in the way that I was approaching it. And I kind of had this idea, this concept that the battles that you're fighting that seem external are in fact only internal, that they really mm-hmm. do emanate and resonate from inside you. And and so, you know, recognizing that you are literally the source of all of your pain. And, and that doesn't mean that things don't happen. It just means that your perspective and your interpretation of it and also kind of what you put yourself through, the repetition of mistakes, the allowances of your own personality, the rough edges of your personality to dominate acquiescence to darkness that some people have. I always had that. I always had that flirtation with the edge, you know, I think through inherited traits, son of alcoholics and, you know, um, traits in myself that made me flirt with sort of destruction a little bit, despite the fact that I, you know, I had every advantage in the world, I think, to a lot of degrees, you know, in comparison to a lot of people. And I had a good, you know, I, I was fine. Yeah, like, but there's something inside me that was pulling at me always and still will always pull at me. It was a very self-critical record. It was just me sort of toying with this concept that I was just thinking about, the philosophy of the idea that we are the source and the potential cure for our for our ills. And I liked the wordplay, you know, the cure for cancer, yeah. the cancer for cure. Right. It was just it just right. seemed like, yeah, I'm, I'm the I'm the cancer for cure. So, well, nice to meet you. <laughs> you know, I'm Jamie. I'm gonna cancer your cure now. I'm gonna I'm gonna come into the room and I'm gonna fuck your day up. Um, and and, and I, I think that that was kind of how I was feeling about myself. I think that you kind of come up with an idea, come up with something that seems profound to you feels profound to you and then you kind of see if you match up to it you know is that what this is about is there so can i really say that this album title fits this at the end of the day it it, it stuck where i read that you know it it was five years since i'll sleep when your dad came out but most of the work on it was in the last like year and a half to two years before the release what was life like in that era you know we've kind of discussed Life during company flow, you know, life during Def Jux, uh, you know, uh, what was life like 
for you in the creation of this album? This was, this was during the period of time where I literally lost everything. This album came out of the period of time in which I lost, I lost a dear friend and I lost my um, money <laughs> and I lost my definition of myself as someone who was working on this label and who created this thing. And all of the things that I had sort of really poured my life into were a little bit pulled out from under my feet. I had hit rock bottom in a lot of ways and was climbing out of it. And I think that this record was, was really that for me in, uh, in life, because even getting the advance to do this record changed my situation. You know, I was like, mm. probably had gone about 10 months without knowing what I was going to do just to even, you know, feed myself, you know, right. more importantly, I was spiritually and adrift in the sense that like, I had uh, always known what I wanted. Even from the age of 16, when I got kicked out of high school, I, I, I already knew it was like, it was fine because I was like, well, I'm mm -hmm. gonna be a rapper and a producer. So I had never stopped. I had, I had always gone forward. There was never a break. There was never a questioning of any of that. This one came after uh, my first big fall as an adult, I think. And for the first time I had, been, I had didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't, and I really didn't understand what my future looked like. I thought there was a big chance that people were probably maybe tired of me. Like whatever mm -hmm. I had to say wasn't potent. Like maybe it was like time, you know, I had started, I was in my early thirties and I was like feeling, I was feeling my artistic mortality a little bit, you know, mm -hmm. if that makes any sense. I had never even stopped to consider that. I had never even stopped to think there would be a future in which I wasn't allowed to do the thing that I love to do anymore or that I wasn't capable of doing it anymore. Um, and for the first time, there was a lot of mortality staring me in the face in the, in the literal sense and in the artistic and, the, and in the financial sense. And in the, there was a period towards the end of Deaf Jokes where I was so miserable and just deeply unhappy. I was doing a lot of drugs. I was really trying to escape my reality. I wasn't facing up to the fact that I didn't like my reality it's something that you kind of look at later and you're like oh i get it like i, I was deeply unhappy I, I, I whatever love i had had for whatever life i had set up had dissipated and i was i was getting better i feel like i was coming out of that but when as i was coming out of that i was just sort of reckoning with some of that stuff it was the first record that i had done in a long time where it was like this is all i have there's nothing else. There's no running a record label. There's no juggling relationships and business and blah, blah, blah. There's no denying and, and you know, and wallowing in, in sort of the pain of watching a, a friend deteriorate. And all these things had kind of come to an end. Mm. And I got the chance to do this record and I was like, fuck it, I'm coming out swinging. I kind of felt like this is my, this is my last solo record. Um, mm. At the time, I kind of felt like that. And, and maybe it was, you know, I haven't done another since. And I don't know. I don't know if it's, it was, but it was very interesting. It was a mix of feeling like very aware of myself in a way that I maybe wasn't before. And also kind of like, fuck it, <laughs> you know, like I'm doing this, like whatever, whatever they say about me, they're going to have to say that I went down swinging, you know? You know, it's, it's so funny you say that because it reminds me of one of the conversations I had with Prince Paul. Uh, when he was talking about the making of his psychoanalysis album, mm. and he was saying that he, in, in the in the state that he was in, in the album that he was making, he felt like he was making his last album. 
And he mm. put all of that energy into that album thinking he was just going to retire or go work for the post office or something right. after that. But that ended up being the album that opened up the doors for him to start working with Chris Rock, winning mm-hmm. Grammys, mm-hmm. and to do a Prince Among Thieves, which kind of like mm-hmm. restarted his solo career. And it's, and it's interesting to, you know, it, there's a there's a parallel here with you, um, because soon after this, you kind of have a, an entire career resurgence in a different direction. This was a, a time in which I had accepted that I didn't know what the fuck was going to happen. I didn't have control over it. And the only thing that I could do was just make the hottest fucking record that I knew how to make. You know, every record has a couple of important songs on it for me that almost to some degree, you could just toss the whole record out and make it just that one jam. Every record kind of has that for me, where you're like, okay, I made this record because I like making rap music, but this song was important to me. This song could have been the one thing I did this year and it would have been the whole everything that I felt um, in a sense. I was reckoning with Camus' death. I had mm. also gone through what I discussed with you, but also, yeah, gone through some some shit. I mean, I had, and then I had made Camus' album, and that wasn't easy either. You know, I put it together. Let me say, he made it. I right. put it together, made sure that it was assembled, and that was like working with a ghost. You know, it was like working with. Right. It was like working with, you know, one of my best friends, just me and him, and it wasn't. It wasn't easy uh, on me, but it was this responsibility that I felt that I had. I was like, if not, I have to do it. I have to do this. So going into this whole thing with like a mixture of like, fuck, that was <laughs> that was a devastating couple of years or a year and a half or a couple, yeah, a couple of years, I would say, at least, at least. Okay. And also, so having that be very close to me, but also being like, all right, Jamie, you don't know what you're doing? Make music. Because that's, that's, mm. that's how this all started. That's the simplicity of it. And I think that that was really, that was great. That was really healthy. I think it saved me. You know? Wow. Um, I'm going to ask you a financial question, but it's not, it's not like a nosy thing. It's, I think it's maybe for my own enlightenment and, and potentially for the enlightenment of listeners as well. But you talk about having lost all your money. And like, I guess in my understanding, limited as it may be uh, uh, of the business, like if you had a few pretty successful records um, mm-hmm. that you would still be continuing to get like royalties or, or or money off of them. But in this case, it doesn't seem like that was the case. Is that, is is that, is well, first of all, I guess, is is it true that those records were successful enough where you would have gotten royalties and was there some reason you weren't reaping the benefits from them at this time? <laughs> Very good question, Mike. I made money on the records, not like a whole hell of a lot of money on the records, but I made money and I made money producing other people's stuff and I, I had my hands in, but I made money touring and, and right. um I kind of been making money since company flow. You know what I mean? I always was, right. I always held on to my dough and I was always, I always had a good stack on me because, you know, I was making a good living. It wasn't like I was mm-hmm. rich at all. You know, right. it was just simply that uh, I had money in my pocket to be able to operate. And um, the thing about the reason why I lost that money. And when I say lost money, I'm not talking about like, when Will Smith blew all of his fucking money from the Fresh Prince shopping in Europe, I'm talking about like I had, you know, I had a hundred grand in my, you know, in the bank, and for me at any given time, you know, that was a big deal, and I could operate. Mm-hmm. But the truth of the matter is, is that 
the, the label itself, I never paid myself. The real truth of it is, is that every once in a while, jokes will get into trouble and just have too many bills and I would float it. Uh-huh. I would take my money that I, I had and I would be like, we're not going to fail, float it. We'd get to that next hump, over that little hump, and then I'd get my money back. Like by the skin of my teeth, you know? I basically kept that label alive with like a few times, two or three times, just because I refused to let it die. And it wanted to die. (laughs) It really did. As a business, it wanted to die because we were in that sweet spot, right? Where physical started to completely tank, but the digital hadn't come... I remember at one point you asked me what happened and I said iTunes. I didn't mean specifically iTunes ruined us and I don't even know. What I meant is that the shift started to happen in the industry, but it didn't happen quick enough. So there were a lot of labels like us that lost the physical sales, but we didn't have the mechanism in place to replace it with anything. The numbers were just too lopsided. Like you went from doing a lot of vinyl to doing barely any vinyl, but the digital shit really wasn't popping enough to keep a whole label afloat. The last time we did this before the label folded, I handed all my money to the label thinking I was going to get this shit back in like a month and the shit never came back. (laughs) The label folded, the label folded. And that was the risk that I took that I was willing to take because I believed in it. But that's what happened. At a certain point, it's just that the news came down that we just had to shutter this shit. It just wasn't possible to keep going financially. And fortunately, I, I bit the bullet and I found myself in a situation where I didn't have any income. And that's it. It's not a big deal. People find that it happens to them. And I have been broke before. And I guess I kind of forgot what it was felt like for a minute there. <laughs> you know, I did. I'm not going to lie. Like, I, I, I was used to being able to take a fucking uber or not they didn't exist i always just had enough money to just do my thing i never owned anything at that time it was just as long as i had money to go do what i wanted whenever i wanted on a low level i was chilling i had to move out of the crib i was in i had to find something affordable you know i had to scale back and i just had to do what everybody does when they when they basically get laid off Hmm. which is figure it out so like we said this is after def jux has folded and this is you releasing your first project on another label. What was it that led you to Fat Possum specifically as a label coming out of Def Jux? I knew Matthew Johnson um, because he had reached out to me previously. I mean, he threw a couple of dollars. I mean, to do a couple of remixes and shit. He was, Fat Possum was a basically primarily a blues label. They did mm-hmm. all the R.L. Burnside shit, they, and they were doing catalog stuff, and... Johnson was a fan and he just uh, he was doing remix stuff for some of his catalog and that's how I got to know him I had just done a few things for him and also he's a he's the type of dude who loves a good tragedy I think I think that he (laughs) I think that he looked at me like I want to work with this guy now I think he looked at me and saw the tragedy in my eyes and was like this guy just got interesting you know let me let me let me uh let me throw some money at him. And that was really what it was too. He was like, yo, I'll put a record out. He had done Kamu's record. It was at the point where Def Jokes as a label was unstable enough that I didn't trust and I didn't want to risk putting Kamu's record out on a record label where the business was possibly not going to survive. Me and Kamu had done some shit for him and I played him the record and he flipped out over it. And I was like, look, man, all I need is for you to pay his family and for you to make sure that this record doesn't disappear. Make sure that this record mm. stays in the world. Like I need people to be able to find this record 
And so they, they did it and I felt some kinship to them and I felt like, you know, I was thankful that there was someone to take, to take that responsibility from me and, that, and, and, and I felt like I trusted them and, um, and Matthew. And he stepped to me uh, like, yo, I'll write you a check. Let's go. Let's do a record. And I needed that fucking check. I'll tell you that. And, uh, and, and I was that's like, real. all right, <laughs> let's go. And that's it. This, um, this album ends up coming out. Is it one week before or after uh, R.A.P. Music for Killer Mike? One week before, which is a complete coincidence. We did not, t- we did not plan that. We did, I had no idea that that was happening. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't see a, a, a way where you would have done that on purpose. It doesn't seem like, it doesn't seem like what you would want uh, is to try to sell, you know, try to be promoting two records at once. It seems a little Yeah, no, a little I hear much. you. It actually was an amazing moment in my career, though, because mm. it was like all of a sudden I wasn't back just with me. I was back in a new way, too, at the same time. Mm. It, it just galvanized. I think it really brought me back into the public eye in a really positive way. And it was and it also allowed us to tour together because it was because it right. just made sense. It was like we just dropped these records together. We're on both of the records. Right. I did both of the records and I got a tour and you got a tour. So let's just go. And, and, that's, and so it really did work out. In an amazing way, but no, there was that was not planned. I was like, "Oh, what? You're dropping?" <laughs> like I, I had no idea. Psychologically, what was it like for you to be making both of those at one time? I mean, for you to be because I don't know if you've done this before, made a solo album while you were also producing a full album for somebody else. No, I've never done that before, and to be completely transparent i don't think i did that really with this either i think i took a break from my solo record to make my record. like i was already pretty deep into my record and i was pretty adamant about finishing it especially because it was like the one thing in my life that i had and also i was like i get some money at the end of this when (laughs) when i'm done you know (laughs) let's be uh (laughs) let's be honest i tend to work on a record for myself for you know, straight year, if not more, right in the smack dab in the middle of that process. I, I was like, all right, come on, fuck it. And maybe it, maybe it'll, maybe it'll kind of add something to how I'm feeling about music. And, you know, I was just like, all right, let's go. Fuck it. Let's, let's do it. You're going to do it now. We'll do it now. Looking over the guest stars on the album in terms of rappers, you got Mr. Motherfucking Esquire, Danny Brown, Killer Mike, Despot. It feels at that time is very much like this new generation of indie rappers. And I remember, you know, at that time, I'm like, my career is just starting. I remember it feeling like kind of like the Wild West. Everybody's kind of trying to figure out what the next era looks like. Mm-hmm. But um, for somebody who's been in this indie space, you basically were at there at the beginning of it. What did that time feel like for you in terms of uh, independent slash underground music? I think to a degree, it was the first time that I felt a little bit outside of any scene. Like I had always been in some regards right in the middle of all these scenes. This was the first time that it was like, there's plenty of people that have got shit popping that are the new indie scene. Some of them definitely don't even know me. So I I kind of felt like an outlier for the first time in a while. Even with the company flow shit, I got to say, like we really instantly became adopted into the scene. We had it really easy. Second we hit the scene, we were just in there. Like everybody fucked with us. The Death Trick shit was like its own family too. That became its own little world, which is good and bad, but it was it still felt very much like there was camaraderie and there was and and I was in the center of that too. And for the first time this one felt 
really much like I was just on my own, which was fine. That's not a negative thing. It just was where I was. So the people that I reached out to or that I was down with and shit, it was for the first time I was I was starting to enter into that elder statesman mm-hmm. zone, which is not something I was used to because <laughs> I was young when I started. You know, like I was 16 right. when I made my first demos as Company Flow. I was 17 when I made my first single as Company Flow. I was an idiot. I was young. <laughs> you know? I was 21 when we dropped our first album. So there were people like Esquire and Danny Brown who had been very vocal about being influenced by me. And they were coming up and I was really into their shit and I really liked them. And I always did like taking um, a mentoring sort of role and I always did pay attention to and tried to really give love and extend whatever I could to people. Whatever I had, I would try to extend, you know, especially to people coming up, which was really the whole point of deaf jokes. Those people, of course, just ended up sort of becoming friends. That's the way that it works with me in terms of collaboration. For the most part, it's friendships. It's people that I have some sort of relationship with, or at least a very strong mutual respect for um, someone that's in my life in some way. Despot has been, you know, was an old friend. Despot was, Despot's been around forever, you know, and I always would always take every opportunity to try and force this dude to rap because Despot's (laughs) so dope. But Despot, you know, just never dropped a record. I mean, I signed Despot on, on Def Jux forever ago. He did a single, but he never would fucking finish his record. I mean, I got so mad at, De- at Despot at one point because I was like, dude, I can't take it anymore. People keep acting like I'm the reason you're not dropping a record. Like, <laughs> motherfucker, make a record. <laughs> Yeah. Motherfuckers don't know shit Not the half of the math or the sum of the quotient Get your cameras in focus to capture the moment I slap you for poking your nose in Long grip so tight that it's choking He got the whole world in his hand Hold it Posing it when his dance don't get close Watch me with the telescope you watch the throne with Point being like, you know it's all relationships for me. And, and it was, it was cool because it was like being sort of feeling like, yo, anyone who's fucking with me right now is fucking with me. It's not because I'm in the middle of a scene. It's not because I have any type of power. It's not because of anything. Cause I'm at my rock bottom right now. Like I'm just a dude making a, some music. Same year I met my wife and mm-hmm. she met me in this phase of my life where I didn't really have two fucking quarters to rub together, you know? And, and, that means something when people fuck with you and they, and it's not about the fact that you can do something for them. And it's not like I'm one of these people that's like, Oh, you, you're using me. I never really think like that, but yeah. it does mean something to you. You know, they're getting it on the ground level. When yeah. someone sees something in you and you don't really have much around you to prove it to them. Right. So everyone who was on the record was down because they fucked with me. This is something I want to get your perspective on. It's something that I have a hard time describing to people when I'm talking about this this space, the indie space, whatever you want to call it. I'm interested from your perspective, is there any difference between being independent and being underground? Is that is that the same thing or is it something that that there's a differentiator for? I always thought that there was a that there was a distinction just because I think that when you're talking about quote unquote independent, then you're in a business space, right? You're mm-hmm. talking about business. I think you can be on a major label and be underground because no one's really peeping you. Right. You know, you, you know, underground is a lot of times it's about a scene. It's about 
something that's happening in your city. It's about something that's happening in multiple cities that are connecting. Right. It's a scene that's not based on business. It's a scene that's based on culture happening, regardless of whether or not the business is in place. And the indie distinction is something that you could say it, it, it moves to. You know, you could say like mm -hmm. the underground scene in New York City of the mid 90s moved into an independent scene with the establishment of labels like Rockets and the establishment of groups like Company Flow who are floating the word independent out there and saying like, let's self-distribute our records. It's, right. it's, it's a choice, it's a reality. So yeah, I don't know if I have anything deep to say about it, except that I do think that there's a distinction. You're not necessarily talking about business when you say underground. I think it's more right. of like recognizing that you're um, not on a radar of popular culture. Where you live in your space is more in a scene, it's more in, a, in an ideal than it is in, a, in the business, in the, in the industry. If that makes sense. I don't know if that makes sense. I wish it was deeper. It does. No, but it's, but it's, it's, it's good because I think that the boundaries between the two, especially the further along we get, they get real hazy. I think that there has been some conflation between independent and underground, even in my own mind, to sure. where like when Chance says he's independent, I get, I feel weird about it because he's like, because he's getting, you know, money from somewhere. I'm like, but that is, but then yeah. you're right. It's not about, it's not necessarily about his sound, his aesthetic, or his circumstances. It's about no. the fact that he's putting his own music out. Oh, yeah. And if you are not signed to a major label, then you're technically independent. And if you go finance that through your own business from other people, I don't think Chance is wrong to say that. I, I think that people need to understand, but that's not an ideal. It's just a business reality. Like Exactly. And that's why it's nothing to get offended by, or it's nothing to even feel some way about. And it's probably nothing to, to even stand on because it's like, we all make choices about how we want to operate. I mean, Run the Jewels gives away our records every time we give away, but we are also right. on a major label this time. So what are we? <laughs> right. What are we? You know, like we gave away our record for free. Right doesn't get much more goddamn independent than that, does it? But at the same time, we fucking signed to a major label for one record. You know, we wanted a marketing budget. <laughs> you know? I think it's about how you operate and the, and the way that your shit is set up. I don't think that some of the older ways that we, from our scene, or like, let me say from my scene, started to establish and draw a line. I don't think that they really technically apply in the same way anymore. But I think that you could look at it more like a spirit at this point, mm -hmm. you know? But yeah, man, like my crew is independent. We are independent and have operated independently our whole, our, our whole career. But we also do deals. I think the technicality of it is simply just, you know, when you're signed to a major and that's your pipeline, then probably can't really say you're independent as much anymore in a technical way. I, I wouldn't. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't look someone in the eyes and be like, we are independent now. But I am independent, though, because <laughs> I've, <laughs> I've always been making the moves that I want to make and I've always right. been controlling it. I've modified my perspective on it to mean, are you creating and crafting a world around what you're doing in which you feel good to be operating. Do you feel comfortable? Do you feel like this is the way that you want to operate? And if you're in a situation where you find yourself not feeling comfortable and also not being able to change it, you may not be independent. <laughs> like, mm. May not be independent, you know, and that's okay. Everyone's adults make your choice. I think that the reason why we were the way that we were and the way that we thought about independence is because we didn't have the power to negotiate with anybody ever. 
until we did, you know? Right. And so you work your entire career and you get everything on your own and you make all your sales, and your deals, and you're climbing up a, like a greased ladder. And when you finally get to that rung, it's not about the top of anything. It's simply about control. It's simply about being able to say, all right, now I can come to the table with somebody and say, this is what I want to do. This is how I want to do it. And you're going to give this to me because I've proven that I'm on point. That's how I look at business now. That's how I look at the whole thing. Anything that anybody wants to do is fine as long as it's making you happy. And as long as you are in a position where you are able to do what you want, negotiate how you want, get what you need from your partners and get to a point where uh, you never feel like you can't do the music you want to do or that you can't say what you want to say you know it's just about fucking personal control man you know well I, I do think it was important to get some perspective from you you being the first person who i ever heard fucking holler independent so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um it's good to it's good to have some idea what that means to you you know in 2021 but let's move on to talking through some of the songs on the album you had mentioned that you feel like you know one of these is like the most important one like the the central the central piece to the album. Which which song is that? Because I don't want to assume. The last song. Ah, for four dollar Vic. Yeah. For the Aggie with the baggy with the bottle, with a smile, with a sip, with a swallow. And don't you ever try to say that you're not one of us, my love. You gotta touch me untrusted with the same tomorrow. I'm still living like a four dollar Vic. So what is a four dollar Vic? I was like listening to it, wondering exactly what that is. A lot of trouble for a little bit of win. When you get, mm. when someone robs you and I'm going to get $4. Ah, got you. Got you. Vic, Vic. That's just a slang for some New York shit probably. Uh -huh. But back in the day, you were a Vic if you got stuck up. It's a lot of trouble to fucking stalk and pull a gun on somebody and all you got is $4 in your fucking pocket. Yeah. Whew. That was the poetry right there. Feeling like a $4 Vic, a lot of trouble for a little bit of win, you know, and, and that was what that was about. And that's, that's encapsulating how you're feeling making this record and dealing with all the things that you outlined earlier and how much of yourself you've put into all of these things. And I think, I think it was, you know, that was the expression of a guy who had just fucking tried his damn hardest for like fucking a long time and did, and never faltered and put so much energy into everything he was doing and saw a lot of what he was doing just collapsed and including but not limited to you know friendships and lives you know and but but also just like man you know i think i was just feeling like god damn i've been grinding i'm really trying here i'm really trying i'm trying to be a good person i'm trying to get my shit together i'm trying to fucking to be somebody i'm trying to prove that i you know that my mom didn't uh you know raise a dummy i'm trying to mm -hmm. i'm trying to prove that um i had just grinded so hard so long that that i just think it was just sort of me being like god damn man i'm trying here right. <laughs> sometimes i just feel like the energy i'm putting in versus what i'm getting back is just not evening out you're constantly readjusting what it is even that you think you want to accomplish you know you think you're somewhere and then all of a sudden life is like that means nothing i'm going to take your friend from you Mm. Yeah. So have fun with your little ego trip of being in charge of something, but wow. You, know, you don't know anything. And now a word from our sponsors. 
We're going to get back to L in a sec, but quickly we want to shout out our sponsor again, ExpressVPN. Have you ever browsed the internet in so-called incognito mode? Well, I'm here to tell you it's definitely not as incognito as you think. And it's not designed to be. Incognito mode on Chrome, for instance, is a Google product, and Google makes its money by selling its users' data. There's a $5 billion class action lawsuit against the company right now in California where Google is accused of secretly collecting user data because people think when they're using incognito mode that their data is not being tracked, but it is. So how do you actually make yourself as invisible as possible online with Express? VPN. Turns out that even in incognito mode, your online activity still gets tracked and data brokers still get to buy and sell your data. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, your connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and your IP address is masked. Every time you connect to ExpressVPN, you get a random IP address shared by many other ExpressVPN customers that makes it harder for third parties to identify you or harvest your data. Best of all, ExpressVPN is super easy to use no matter what device you're on, phone, laptop, or smart TV. All you have to do is tap one button for instant protection. So if you really want to go incognito and protect your privacy, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN, visit ExpressVPN.com. Dot com slash what to get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash what. ExpressVPN dot com slash what. And now back to your regularly scheduled program. You mentioned, you know, one of the things you're trying to do at this time is trying to get your shit together, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, you have a song here, Works Every Time, that feels very much about, like, you know, your relationship to substances. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, that could be a metaphor, but it also could be quite simply what it is. This being a dark time in your life, what was that relationship like at the time with like you and substances, if, if you want to go into it? I've been waiting for you all week. Don't you know this is a rotten time to not not be me? I've been waiting for an hour now. What the fuck is up? I got memories to lose, man. I am in a rush. I was doing a lot of ecstasy. I was doing a lot of blow. I was drinking a lot. This is a couple years of real and like just escapism. Partying, you know, going out to the bar and just being like, man, I need to, I need to escape for for an hour or two or five mm. because there is no fucking escape from my life. <laughs> this fucking this, this this shit that I set up all of this shit I, was, I can't really figure out how to how to I can't think my way out of this thing that I built you know you're laying some shit brick by brick around you and you're building something and then you look up and you're like oh I built my own prison cell great you know like <laughs> I wish I would have had an architect or someone consult with me before I started building this thing I let myself just kind of indulge in escapism. But I had a conscience about it, a self-awareness about it that was very much gnawing at me, you know? A lot of artists are sensitive motherfuckers and drugs are really appealing because it's a result. Mm -hmm. It's a fucking result and you can kind of rely on it. Ecstasy is going to make me feel euphoric. Cocaine is going to make me feel awake and and talkative and social. Alcohol is going to fucking relax me and and make me numb. All of these things for someone who comes from a family of addiction or someone who just has that tendency in them. These are all very real, not always bad. You know, I like, I like, I don't think drugs are just inherently bad. 
I just think sadness and stress and drugs don't mix. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think abusive drugs is just a fucking really big mistake. And nobody's above getting caught in some bullshit, no matter how much you think that you are. And I never had to go to rehab or anything like that, but I did have to check myself. Where? You know, I did have to fucking check myself. So I kind of wanted to look at that and, and write about that because I think if you're an artist, man, not only are you more susceptible to those types of things, but if you can write about it, you, should, you probably should. You probably should write about something that that's that big, you know, because it's important, man. Like you need to be honest with yourself. And if you're not laying it out there, if you're not okay with laying it out there for people, you may as well just fucking hang up the whole artist part of your fucking title. Just hang it up because that's your only use. You're only fucking use because there's plenty of people out there that are struggling. Right. There's just not plenty of people out there that can write about it. That have an outlet where they can actually talk about dealing with the shit. Right. It's a privilege. Mm-hmm. And if you're not fucking dealing with it, then what is your point? What is your existence? Like as an artist, I don't know. So for me, I just thought it was the most important thing to bear it, just to lay it out. I had to reckon with it. And one of the ways that I reckon with it is by writing about it. And And so the song is part of that checking yourself process that you were going through at the time? The song about, it's being honest about that part of me, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like a fresh start on a new world and I already want to go home. Yeah. You know, it's like you take a pill and all of a sudden you're a fucking brand new person. If you've got a conscience and you've got a um, self-awareness somewhere buried underneath that drug, there's a part of you that's always being like, this isn't it. Mm-hmm. This isn't it. It's like, God damn it. I pinned my hopes on this tonight. <laughs> tonight, I pinned my hopes on being high. Mm. I pinned my hopes on being euphoric. I think it's just a recognition of the fact that that wasn't the solution. It right. was not the solution. It's just me being honest, man. And I don't feel embarrassed by it as much as I used to because I could write a song like mm. that. You know, it's like, be, but there's this part of me that was just so goddamn embarrassed. Just so, just embarrassed that I even let myself indulge in that shit and that people saw me indulging in that shit and I was stubborn enough to fucking keep doing it for as long as I did. And, you know, everything just gets clearer when you kind of just grow up a little bit, man. And, and that song must have just been a part of that process, mm. I guess. It's not like I stopped doing drugs forever. Right. It's not like I haven't done drugs since. It's just that my relationship with, the, with drugs has changed. And, and I know that there was a point in my life when... I really was using them because I was miserable. Right. And I think that that is the absolutely the fucking wrong time to be using drugs. Where? You know, every time I talk, it sounds really depressing, doesn't no. it? No. Like, whenever I get into these fucking, like, rants about it, it's just too much. No, nah, see, the reason it doesn't, though, is because you have so much perspective. Do you know what I'm saying? And it's because you've written the song that lays the shit out. <laughs> Do you know what I'm right. saying? Like, it actually right. gives you perspective to be like, oh, yeah, like, she yeah, I still use drugs, but it was most fucked up at this time when I was using drugs because I was using them for the wrong fucking reasons. And now you've explored yeah. it and you know yeah. why. And like, that's the type of shit that, yeah. like, if, if you were someone who hadn't done that exploration, then this conversation would have an entirely different tone. You know what I'm saying? Also, I also think that the low... The wretched sort of lurching souls, you know, of the world who are down need a shout out. Mm. They need to be, you know, it's like, look, man, I'm one of you. (laughs) You know, sometimes you need to write for them. It's not really meant to mean the same thing for people who don't know what the fuck I'm saying. Like there's a level to it that uh, that is not for anybody who doesn't quite know 
what that is. And if I'm eloquent enough, the people who do know will be like, yeah, he, he hit that. Mm. Like he touched on that correctly. Just being honorable and doing justice to something that isn't weakness. It's not fallibility. It's not something that's incorrect. It's something that you went through, something that you dealt with. I think, I think, you know, the strength of it is honoring all corners of your human experience, not just the pretty ones. You know what I'm saying? Not just the curated ones. For sure. But, you know, as we're having these talks, man, as we go through these episodes, I start to realize, man, like, even if I didn't know this at the time, one like my favorite, I think, category of songs of yours are the ones that feel like they're based on this heightened version of reality. So, you know, the stuff with your family or the stuff with relationships. Um, so the song on here for my upstairs neighbor, it's definitely one of my mm. favorites. And it sounds like it could be based on uh, some kernel of reality or it could be completely fictional. Was there a kernel of truth to that in terms of an upstairs neighbor and you and you having that kind of daydream fantasy and making a song out of it? Yeah. Come on, you know the drill. These walls are thick. I got my own shit that I'm dealing with. I haven't seen or heard a thing. I never met him. That's the city. Good luck working at Columbo. I'm a bounce. You got my info, but you'll never get my pity. And I'm out. If you kill him, I won't tell. If you kill him, I won't tell. That song is like a little bit in the lineage that started with Last Good Spring. And went went on with Stepfather Factory and um, and um, yeah and and it's such a part of my fiber but but it's always through a different lens. Me and my now wife moved to Williamsburg, a place I had never lived before. But we found a place that was affordable and it was good, and and we went there. And the walls, like if somebody like sighed two floors below you, you could hear them. Okay. <laughs> Shit, like it yeah. was so goddamn. Literally, there were holes in the stairwell. This shit should have been condemned. We had an upstairs neighbor who we could hear. We could, well, our bedroom was right beneath their living room. Mm-hmm. And her and her husband would get into these vicious fucking arguments. And he would just say the craziest shit to her. But it was all, it was calm. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like, it was like, it wasn't like yelling. But it was just me listening, really clearly hearing just the most sad. He would say this most savage shit to her. And it brought up some shit for me. Of course. <laughs> I didn't like it. I did not like it. It brought up some things for me. And I would see her occasionally in the hallway and I would fantasize about saying something to her. You know, and I would try and kind of get eye contact with her and just see if she was all right. Because, mm. which I think, I think is, is something that kids who grew up seeing or experiencing some of that stuff in their childhood, they tend to feel protective here and there. And I certainly do. I feel like I'm tuned into it, especially around that type of stuff with, with the women, because I was raised by the women in my life. And they were the ones who were always at the suffering at the hands of these monsters, you know? Mm-hmm. So that was sort of a fantasy to a degree. It was a story. It was a New York story. And I wanted to do it sort of out of chronology. I wanted to write something that also nodded to the reality of what being a New Yorker is in a way. Because part of what being a New Yorker a New Yorker is, you know, people think New Yorkers are rude. But the yeah. truth of the matter is that New Yorkers have shells that they build, that they perfect. And we look at it as also a sign of respect. You know, you don't puncture that shell unless you're invited. So as opposed to this somewhere like the South where everyone's like, hey, how you doing? Good morning. New Yorkers aren't like that. We, when we walk, for the most part, we, we keep our eyes forward and we go from point A to point B. We don't bother anybody. 
if we're invited in to communicate, we communicate. We mind our fucking business to some degree, right? Which is a sad and true thing, but there's some honor to it. Hopefully it came through when you hear it, you can tell that this is about a guy being grilled by cops, about something that happened. And him just being like, look, I don't know what the fuck, yeah, I'm not saying shit, I don't know shit, good luck, you know, it's not my business. (laughs) That's them, I'm me, I don't know anything, can't fucking help you, Palumbo, like, and then flashing backwards in the second verse to this moment, and me imagining, like I had so many times, of actually saying something to this Mm -hmm. woman. I just imagine what, how she felt. I couldn't quite tell how serious it was. It wasn't, a, it wasn't physical. Right. But I kind of, for the story, I kind of, heightened it. you know, I kind of, I kind of heightened it because, you know, that's where my childhood comes in. You know, mm-hmm. that's where my recognition of the event comes in. And that's what I think about when I hear someone being brutal and verbally to somebody. I think that that's usually followed by violence simply because that's what happened in my home. Just this fantasy of, seeing her in the hall as we had these thin halls and have to brush past each other and just turning to her and just looking at her and just being like, if you off this motherfucker, just know I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to say shit. That's how I felt, man. Like, yo, if you literally fucking shoot this dude, it's all good. Mm. They could take me into the fucking, they could take (laughs) me from what I've heard, from what I've heard Mm. and from what I've experienced. Hey, I didn't hear shit. I'm not going to say shit. Don't worry about it. And in fact, wink, (laughs) I might be slightly encouraging it as well. Again, it's a story that comes out of the lineage of of my past, but it's a distanced one. Mm -hmm. For me also, I know that there have been people following my story. There have been people following me since Company Flow, and when they tune into my records, to some degree, they know that they're getting Jamie Moline, and and, and there's some continuity there. And I felt like it was cool, again, to find a way to touch on that through the lens of who I had become and also through the lens of a, of a story, a character that I could separate myself. The first one, Last Good Sleep, was just the rawest, pure layout of, of reality of what happened. Stepfather Factory was me playing with the concept and trying to make a commentary about the situation. This one was sort of like, hey, remember that kid, that little kid? He's grown up. He's a fucking adult male now. And this is the continuation of that story. It's 15 years later, you know, 20 years later, whatever it is. When something big like that happens in your life, maybe you just pull on it in some way forever. Mm-hmm. Maybe as an artist, it just comes back and back and back. It's the I don't thread. Know. Yeah. It's the thread that yeah. goes through everything. Um, yeah. We don't often talk about what you listen to. Um, you know, of course, you're a person who, who's heard a lot of music just for digging and, and in for personal listening purposes as well. I'm listening to Drones Over Brooklyn and the end of it, man. Mm-hmm. It really sounds like a blues song. Bring it back. Then I didn't know before we just spoke about it earlier that Fat Possum is a blues label. And so I guess a two-part question here as we as we wind this down. Um, mm. One is, do you do you have a relationship with the blues in terms of music you listen to? And two, is this your blues album? Is this a blues album for you? That's a very good, interesting question. I believe that this is a blues album mm-hmm. for me. I believe that $4 Vic is my version of a blues song. Right. 
I do listen to blues. I'm not an aficionado, so I'm obsessed with music in general. And as I have, I have inspiration from every sect of music. I listen to everything as long as I like it. Right. <laughs> that's, that's all, you know, there were themes of, 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 you know, a lot of themes of pain in, on this record for sure. So right. I would never want to insult the blues by saying, you know, like, yeah, I made a blues record. No. Whatever my spiritual version of that is certainly popped up in certain places on that record. Yeah. Uh, I'm interested and curious about what the stage show was like for this album. Um, we talked a lot about when you're making I'll Sleep When You're Dead, you're doing it in the mind of wanting, like thinking forward to the stage show and trying to create um, this, this big musical experience. This seems, you know, sound-wise to be a little bit more back to you and beats, even mm-hmm. though there's instrumentation mm-hmm. on it. It's not... The arrangements aren't mm-hmm. quite as as big, so I'm wondering what the stage mm-hmm. show was like when you went on tour uh, for this one, and how did it feel? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was all right. <laughs> it was way more rapidy rap. Yeah, I'll yeah. tell you that much. You know, and, and I think that part of this record was me being like, okay, the last record I made was very like orchestrated, yeah. like it was very much movements almost. It had a very big musical feel to it, and, and I felt like I kind of wanted to get back to a little bit of the grit and, and the bop of, uh, and just kind of like wrap my ass off mm-hmm. on a lot of it, mm-hmm. which I did, I think. And I enjoyed touring it. When you say, when like, I don't know, you know how touring is, man. When I say I enjoyed touring it, what I mean is sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> like, I enjoy touring. I enjoy yeah. being with my friends and doing what I love. It was never like it was like, oh, hey, I'm fucking huge. Mm-hmm. It was just like, hey, put me in the right city. I can do a thousand people Word. straight up. And, and, and that's great. Put me in the wrong city. And, you know, <laughs> we're just going to have me, me and my boys are just going to have to have a good show and go out and get drunk. You know, and, and that was what it was. I had a lot of fun with, with my peoples out there, man. I got a good crew of people, great musicians and just good people. So that definitely saved me. And also... This was probably the first time that I had toured where I wasn't fucking batshit insane. Like, I wasn't really going crazy with drinking and, and shit. I was drinking, you know, like, but like a regular person. Like an adult. <laughs> once, you, once you hit, like, 32, you're like, wait a second. This shit is lingering a little longer. Yeah. Than 25, I fucking probably smoked dust and just be fine the next day. <laughs> you know, 32, you were like, I should probably not get drunk tonight. I got to show them <laughs> What are your thoughts on the possibility of doing more solo projects at this point? I don't know, man. You know, I've been thinking about that recently. I wonder to myself if that's going to happen or, or if that's something that I want to do. And I wonder what the story will be. I don't know. I got other shit that I'm interested in doing, mm-hmm. but I don't exactly know what. You know, Run the Jewels has taken up the last several years of my life, and I never cut off the idea of doing a piece of work with my name on it that's that's you know just my name on it and i think it's an interesting time in my life you know i just came off of this record we're not even touring this bitch until probably late summer if everything goes right so i have a little bit of time to kind of sit around and imagine what the next thing might be and i can say for the first time in a long time i I don't know Mm -hmm. i really have no clue in an interview about this album and this is where we're going to kind of wind it down you said and actually even Earlier in this conversation, you said that part of the thesis of this album was about you struggling with a darkness. If you're looking back on it now from 2021, if you in this struggle with darkness, do you feel like you came out on top? Yeah, I do. 
That's what's up. I really do. That's what's up. And I, yeah, man. And I, you know, thank God. Yeah, like, thank exactly. God. Like, really, really. Exactly. Straight up. I did. It was an exorcism of the, of the past, and it was a recognition of what wasn't working. And, and But it was also part of the process, literally, of, of, of a new beginning. And my life got simplified. What I realized was that I'm a creator, man. That's what I want. Mm-hmm. I also realized that what I want out of relationships with people and, and myself had to be streamlined and really simple. Love, joy, creativity, ease of intention. Yeah, I came out on top. I, I, and that's why I wonder about what my next record will be, simply just because it's like, traditionally I associate a lot of these records with darkness, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Run the Jewels for me was a little bit of an escapism when it first started. And, and then it got a little heavier because we're, we're artists and we got to speak our minds. And so we add that in, right? right? And it becomes a fuller picture. And I think it became more important for that and better for that. But it was really a way for me to get out of my own sort of way for a second there. And that's how it started. So it's tough for me. I'm not really 100% sure yet what I'm thinking about, what I want to examine, what I want to, you know, I guess I just kind of, to some degree, I get intimidated and exhausted even thinking about the shit that was going through my head when I made my last record and a record before that. Like it was fucking intense, man. And and I feel proud of it as art. And I know that I honored those moments. And I think it made important music, at least important for me, art for me. But I don't know how you feel. I mean, you wrote a record that really, you know, you excoriated yourself. Yeah, man. So how do you feel about writing right now? Is it fun or is it dark? I don't yeah. know. You know, it's, it's it, you're 100% right. And for me, the jury's still out. You know what I'm saying? It, it is that thing of like, man, I just said all of this stuff. Now what do I say? And, and that's, that's, that's the place I find myself in for sure. No doubt. And I'll tell you, there's only one one way to determine that. And it has nothing to do with what you think people want. Exactly. <laughs> it has nothing to do with that. And that's all I won't do. Whether it be Run the Jewels or LP or anything, it's never going to be about me trying to create something because I think people want to hear mm-hmm. it. And that's what saved me, man. Like being really clean and about my intentions. Like, yo, I just want to make shit. And I, I don't want to fucking play games with myself about what it is. If something occurs to me, then you're going to hear it, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you know, It might just be a piece of music. Honestly. It might just be a piece of music. Yeah. Well, man, I, I know it, it has been uh, intimidating and exhausting to sit uh, and dig through this stuff again. So thanks for... Now, you don't intimidate me, B. Well, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, you mean me, yeah. Yeah, I mean you, actually. <laughs> exactly. Um, but, but for real, dude, thank you for opening up that can and getting into some of this stuff. Like something you touched on earlier, man, I do think it's important for people to struggle to have stuff for them because it inspires people. Yeah, man. You know what I'm saying? To like be able to push through and you being able to look back on this stuff and talk about where you were then um, in contrast to where you are now. I mean, I think that's just really important to people, man. So so, so thanks for, for doing it again. Well, yeah, man. Well, absolutely. Um, all right, dude. Um, this has been another episode of What Had Happened Was. Um, you know, I think after this, we'll start to dig into the work of uh, Run the Jewels, man. Um, how how you oh, feel about shit. that going forward? I feel great about it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about Dick Jones. <laughs> Give me the hell away from me. Word, man. Well, uh, we'll look forward to getting into it, man. Um, once again, thank you to Mr. LP, and we will see y'all again soon. Peace. Lonely Island Audio.